Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, our regular listeners may recall from a few weeks ago when we did a mini-sode on fashion trends that we would like to see return and others that we, well, might like to (laughs) disappear into the ether forever. Um, But if you heard this episode already, you might remember that one of my picks to return was this whole look of disco. So, you know, slinky dresses, mesh halter tops, feathered hair, chunky heels. And, well, I'm I'm guessing that I must have garnered some sort of favor with our fashion history fairy godmother. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because today we get to chat with one of the designers whose work defined the disco scene. Um, the man People magazine called, quote, the fashion king of the sexy cling, none other than Stephen Burroughs. Stephen, welcome to the show. Yes. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on Dress today. Um, And I'd like to give you a happy belated birthday because I understand it was your birthday last week. (laughs) Yes, Sunday. (laughs) Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure to be here. So last week was not only your birthday, but also the relaunch of your capsule collection with Target. So also a congratulations on that. We're going to talk about it a little bit more later in the podcast. But Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Very exciting stuff. And I would just like to point out that there are one, two, three alumni of FIT <laughs> in the studio right now because Cass and I did our master's degree in the fashion and textile studies program there. But you, of course, studied fashion design there in yeah, the late 1960s. when it was a two-year school. <laughs> yeah. So at that time, the fashion design degree was only um, an associate's degree, yeah. right? So this kind of leads me to my first question. When did you first realize that you wanted to be a fashion designer? And can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Because I I think you grew up in New Jersey, more or less. Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. And I commuted. My father lived in New York. My mother lived in New Jersey. So on the weekends, I would come to New York. I first realized that I might try fashion design when I had to pick a major in college. I went to the Philadelphia Museum College of Art to be an art teacher. Mm. But you had to pick a major in your second year. So they took us on a tour of the school and through this economics department was a room full of figures, forms. And I loved drawing, sketching, fashion. So I toyed with the idea of being a fashion illustrator But then I decided to be a teacher instead, and I went to Museum College of Art in Philadelphia to do that. I just decided I I might try fashion design because I didn't want to be an illustrator because they copied things. I wanted to originate the idea. And so I switched schools and went to FIT. And the first thing I designed was when I was in high school, we were obsessed, me and my friends were obsessed with the uh, mambo. And I used to 
go to this club in New York called the Palladium on 53rd and Broadway, which is a famous oh, Latin yeah. American club. Still legendary to this day. <laughs> was the best. That's when I first started illustrating dresses for my partners to dance in. Mm-hmm. And when I decided to be a designer, I took that aesthetic and brought it with me to fashion design. And I want to go back a little bit to your childhood because I think it was your grandmother or your mother who taught you how to sew, right, as a yes, young, my young grand, man? My, my maternal grandmother. I think my mother and father, parents met uh, at Hattie Carnegie's when they were sample hands there in the 40s. My Paternal grandmother used to bring all the fabrics home and make her something to wear to church on Sunday. So I would see all these fabrics from Hattie Carnegie, and my grandmother would spend the weekend, the weeks, evenings in the week, making these clothes to wear to church on Sunday. So I that was my only contact with fashion until... We started going to see the Ebony Fashion Fair when it was first introduced in 1958. That was my only connection to fashion because my play friends' parents were the ones who gave the benefit that this Ebony Fashion Fair was at. Mm -hmm. So I got to go see it. And that was, I had no intention of being a fashion designer, none whatsoever. (laughs) But uh, my grandmother did teach me to make a dress for my girlfriend who lived upstairs when I was eight years old. <laughs> and she had just got a new Singer sewing machine which had a zigzag <laughs> stitch that I fell in love with. And so I made her this outfit that was all zigzag. In red thread, I started with that signature right then. Uh, but I had no interest. Other than that, making the dress at the time in being in fashion. Yeah, and April and I were actually really thrilled to learn that your grandmother, and it sounds like your mother and father, worked at Hattie Carnegie? No, my two grandmothers. Oh, your two grandmothers. So for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with Hattie Carnegie, the company was one of the biggest names in American fashion beginning in the 1920s. And while Carnegie herself was not a fashion designer, she was more of a tastemaker or stylist. She imported French haute couture designs and also had this incredible staff of in-house designers that created her Hattie Carnegie originals. Mm -hmm. Norman Norell, for instance, worked for her for many years and pretty much anyone who was anyone in the American fashion scene freelanced for for Carnegie at one point or another. So that was a really cool connection to make. Mm. Um, Yeah. I I have a question, Stephen. What was was the role of fashion being raised by your mother and your grandmother growing up? Because I have this kind of mental picture in my head. They're probably very fiercely chic women, both of them. My paternal grandmother was that way. My maternal grandmother was more L.L. Bean. Uh, She was a gardener, so she wore pedal pushes and little tops, and she wasn't like my paternal grandmother, who was very chic and model thin, and she had the latest styles that she got from Hattie Carnegie. (laughs) (laughs) I think she would steal the patterns and make them for herself. (laughs) And she'd get fabric that was left over from Hattie Carnegie and make her outfits to wear to church. 
That's amazing. So you mentioned you went to school at FIT, and after graduating, you briefly worked for a blouse manufacturer. But on the side, you were, as you mentioned, designing going out clothes for your friends and acquaintances. So, so I was designing clothes for myself. Oh, okay. Uh, not dresses, of course, mm-hmm. but we're T-shirts and shirts and pants and skirts. I think I read— was mainly what I did. Yeah. As I was say, I think I read somewhere that you cut a pair of— pants out of one of your grandmother's leather jackets? <laughs> My first leather pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she had a coat that I cut apart and made a pair of pants out of. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Very it enterprising. First, it was my first garment after that dress I made for my girlfriend who lived upstairs when I was eight. So now I was around 16, 17 in high school. And at one point, I thought about being a doctor, too. But then I went and volunteered at the hospital and saw the blood. No way. <laughs> <laughs> Leather What's and I going suede to do sequins that? <laughs> seems way more interesting. <laughs> I ended up in fashion. Yeah. We kind of want to hear a little bit about the nightlife scene of the 60s um, and the kind of the role in fashion at the time when you were maybe in school or just kind of starting out as a designer. Well, it was all about the music that was coming out. Motown, the Philadelphia sound, the Memphis sound was all influencing what was happening. As it is today, we were very into cliques groups that hung out together and would go everywhere together. And there were like five cliques that kind of ruled everything. And ours was one of them. There was a party, it seemed like, every night. And everyone would come to my house and basically take my clothes to go out in and never bring them back. (laughs) So I had to keep making (laughs) things to wear. And the girls could wear the T-shirts or the shirts and the pants the girls could wear. So that was mainly what I did, was unisex in a way, because it was just a T-shirt, a shirt, and a pair of pants. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm curious, um, you know, this going out culture, the nightlife culture at the time centered a lot around dance, which you've already said that you were a mambo freak mm-hmm. when you were in high school. What role did your interest in dance play in the development of your design aesthetic? Because I know, like, the body itself has always been at the core of your work. Yeah, and how it moves mm-hmm. in dancing. Mm-hmm. I picked dancers because they had the best kept bodies at the time. So that was a big inspiration for me. Today, you can't body shame anyone. All sizes are relevant. And that's what Target brought to to my range of sizing. Mm -hmm. Because you have an entire range of plus sizes within your capsule collection that just launched recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... In April of 1969, Women's Wear Daily published an article in advance of the opening of the O Boutique, which declared the venture, quote, for creative people, by creative Mm. people. Of course, you are one of them. Um, But O was anything uh, but a a run-of-the-mill clothing boutique. So we were hoping that maybe you could tell us a little bit about the concept of O and who was involved and maybe who were some of the customers. Well, the owner was a customer of mine, 
that I made special clothes for. And he came up with the idea that he wanted to open an art bazaar that featured artists, artists from the city. And he considered me an artist, and he considered my clothes uh, uh, artistic. So he asked me if I would like to be involved in this boutique he was going to call O for the Japanese symbol of infinity. So I said yes. I would be interested in being involved in it. And we went on a search for a place to to do it, on a spot to do it. And we settled on 19th Street and Park Avenue, a block from Max's Kansas City. Hot uh, spot. Legendary hot <laughs> spot. It was, it was the spot. <laughs> uh, so we would often go from work to Max's to hang out. And that opened in 1968. Mm. But it had paintings, it had sculptures, it had all things he considered to be artistic was involved in Au Boutique, but the clothes took over. All the department stores were coming down and trying to get me to do ready-to-wear. And I finally did it with Bonwit Teller in 1969. But then Old Boutique closed because the guy didn't have the money to fund doing a collection and producing a line at the same time. So it eventually closed, and I was out of a job. But my friend Joe Schumacher, who actually discovered me, the director from Batman, uh, he was the visual planning director at Henry Bendel's department store. And he suggested that I come see the president of Henry Bendel's, Geraldine Stutz, and bring some of my things so she could see them. And I did this, had a meeting with her, and she tried on a few of my things, and they were my things, not women's things. They were my coat, my pants, my T-shirt, my shirt. But she tried it on and turned around in this mirror that she had that's famous for looking at the clothes that were coming into the store. And she turned around and she said, I'll give you a boutique on the third floor. When can you start work? <laughs> that's amazing. Because, <laughs> like, you know, we're so accustomed to, like, quote-unquote pop-up shops or a shop boutique within a department store. But this was something rather novel at this time. Yes. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit more about your any sex clothes? Because that was something that was really you know, new to the 1960s. You you wouldn't design clothing that both men and women could wear prior to that. Well, it was just a T-shirt and a shirt and the <laughs> pants, and what, girls wear that. Yeah. <laughs> so, guy and guys wear that. So, it just didn't matter. It mattered what you liked, what style you liked. And you put it on. If it fit, you wore it. If it didn't, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> So the boutique within Bendel's was called Stephen Burrow's World. Yes, um, named by Geraldine Stutz. And she can, gave it that name. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how it evolved and came to be and the types of clothing that you were doing uh, for Stephen Burrow's World? It was mostly knits. Uh, it was on the third floor, which was their savvy floor, which was for contemporary fashion. 
that they went around the world and collected. And I was put on the third floor with that group of people. And it was black, a room black with snail heads all over the place. Because I was big on nail heads and snaps. I didn't like zippers. I used snaps or no closure at all. Just pull on and pull off. And that was the aesthetic of my... And that it'd be colorful. Mm-hmm. It had to be colorful. And I believed all colors were relative. And you just have to put them together and hope someone likes it. <laughs> well, and obviously they did. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. Yeah, and I, I have to say that I really love this next quote because it's quite the compliment coming from Carl Lagerfeld. But, you know, he's not exactly known for his generous praise of fellow designers, but he once remarked of your work that you were, quote, the only new original American designer since Claire McCardell. And what you were doing was incredibly original. Um, a lot of the you know, people say about your work, you're not historicizing, you're creating new things. Mm. And you launched more than a few entirely novel ideas into the American fashion scene, including your signature lettuce edge hems. And like you just mentioned, you're really Mm. well known for your color blocking. So was there inspiration behind the way that you incorporated color in your work or how you came to the, the idea of using color in that way? I just liked color. And I thought the things, thought of the things as toys, and they should be colorful, toys for adults. And it was very simple. As I said, I thought all colors were relative and that they could be put together. It was just how it's done. We developed a way of cutting that made everything come out different. It would be the same style, but each of them would be different. And we achieved that in the cutting and sorting. You couldn't take too much time to sort so you just pull off the color and put it together and how it comes out it comes out i like that kind of like kismet random fate quality (laughs) well the idea was that you'd have something that no one else had right right and it makes it a little more playful i would i would imagine also (laughs) your lettuce edge hems were also something that were so fresh and Mm -hmm. so new to the seam how did they come to be? And I'm guessing this might have something to do with your love of the zigzag that you yes. developed as a child. But but they really played a, a very specific role in the soft silhouettes that you were creating at this time. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, actually, it was a mistake how lettuce came about. <laughs> Sample Ham was putting a hem together around the edge of a garment, and she stretched it. So it made a ripple, and I liked what it looked like and wanted to do it even more. So we started experimenting with stretching the fabric as we sewed, and that's how lettuce was born. Hmm. I kept getting the zigzag stitch smaller and smaller, so it made like a lettuce leaf edge, and that's how it got named Lettuce by Diana Vreelin of Vogue who was the editor-in-chief at the time. And I'm not sure if you know this, Stephen, but one of your dear friends recently was on the show, Pat Cleveland. Yeah. Yes. And she was your fit model and muse during the 1970s. She loved your lettuce dresses, pretty much anything you put on her. (laughs) Uh, And she credits you with so many things, including helping her to create her signature walk. Can you talk a little bit more about 
Pat and your relationship, but also just the role of the model in your work. Because Pat, I think, was your fit model, which means you made your clothes for her on her body type. And mm-hmm. That's when we were very young. <laughs> when we first met, she just became my every woman. I could imagine anything on her. And when, we, when I, I met her, she was like a sketch that walked off the page that I had done. <laughs> it was it was like kismet, as you say. And we've been friends ever since, the first time we met. She's an inspiration, so positive and happy. And she wants to bring that to everyone. She wrote about you in her memoir, which she um, published recently. I'm sure you've read it. And she was speaking about the first time entering your studio, your atelier. She said, quote, It was though I'd walked into a rainbow or the land of Oz. I felt I had finally arrived in my true home, the place I was meant to be in. I was coming to life. I felt beautiful for the first time. This was the effect Mr. Burroughs' clothes <laughs> had on me. I put them on and feel like dancing. <laughs> so um, quite a lot of some of this dancing probably happened at the Temple of Disco, Studio 54. Right. And I'm hoping that you could share some of your memories of this club, which, of course, as we all know, remains, you know, completely legendary today. (laughs) I'm sure that you have some fantastic stories that are appropriate for the podcast, maybe a few that are not appropriate for the podcast. (laughs) Uh, It was a great club. It was great because everything was free. (laughs) There you go. They loved designers, and we had the run of the place. Um, There was a party there almost every night. We'd go almost every night except Monday. It was like a layover day because we would from Thursday to Sunday we were there virtually every night it was such a mix of people from all walks of life came through the studio although it was very picky at the door who could get in we never had any trouble and you're with quite an entourage weren't you yes (laughs) (laughs) and you could bring guests Mm -hmm. and they let you in and they gave really special parties. They had great taste in how to plan things and how to execute it. Then it got a little wild. <laughs> there was things going on in the club that I can't really talk about. Yeah. But it was pretty naughty. <laughs> I can I, say that. I read an interview with you in Women's Wear Daily, I think from 1972, and you were talking about your routine, at your daily routine at the time. Mm-hmm. And you said you got about three to four hours of sleep and that you, every night, mm-hmm. you were able to um, function at that because you guys wouldn't go out until midnight, I think, and right. the club for three or four hours. Till it closed. And then we go to an after-hours club, <laughs> the Continental or tabletops or Crisco Disco. There were so many clubs back then. And Steve and Ian started Studio 54 in Enchanted Garden now in the five towns. And that's where I first met them. Can you tell us a little bit who was part of your entourage at this time? Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, everyone had a DJ. Every clique had a DJ that was the DJ of that clique, and a horticulturist who did dealt with the plants. And mine was a guy named Tony DePace was audio, 
and his partner was the DJ, uh, Don Finley, and then there was my assistant, Bobby Breslow, and Hector Torres, and Roz Rubenstein, and Vi Higginson, and Pat, of course, and Alva. Chin. Alva Chin. Yeah, another model. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Norma Jean Darden, Ramona Saunders, Deanna Lambert. And a lot of these women that you just mentioned um, happen to be part of yet another epic event, uh, the Grand Divertissement of Versailles, or later dubbed by the fashion press as the Battle of Versailles. Um, But this was held at the Opera House at the French Palace of Versailles in France, and the event was ostensibly a presentation of the work of five French couturiers and then also five American designers that was intended to raise funds for the restoration of the palace. And we've actually already done an episode on the Battle of Versailles with Robin Gavon mm-hmm. because she wrote a really wonderful book about the event's significance um, of American fashion. And we're curious, of course, about your experiences at Versailles, Stephen, because it has been much remarked that putting the production on was not without its challenges. But in the end, it seems public opinion was that the American contingent walked away with a proverbial prize. Um, yes, especially we your we section. <laughs> after your after your designs were on stage, people literally threw their programs up in the air in elation. So yeah, I thought something went wrong. <laughs> they were screaming and yelling and stomping on the floor. It was and then all the programs came up to the second floor. It was an unusual thing because you couldn't the designer couldn't be backstage with the clothes like we always are. Hmm. They wouldn't let us do that. We had to sit in the balcony, and I was fortunate enough to sit next to Yves Saint Laurent, who told me I made beautiful clothes. Aww. In French, of course, he said that. <laughs> but that was a highlight of the of the experience. There was no heat. It was the middle. It was Thanksgiving, and there was no heat for the girls, and the girls would had to come out to the Versailles first thing in the morning. They couldn't leave till like 11 o'clock at night. It was wild. And they had no food, no toilet paper. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then they like expected camping. the girls to to be fresh and, and up, which right. couldn't be done under the circumstances. So we had to throw a fit. And finally, they bought food and toilet paper. And it was an experience because the scenery that Joe Eula, Halston's assistant, designed right. was too small for the it, the stage dwarfed it. So we couldn't use it. And we were stuck with no scenery, which turned out to be the good thing mm-hmm. because it was nothing but the clothes and the bare stage and... I think that's what put us over. And the music, of course, yeah, yes. Pat talks about how um, incredible the music was because you were bringing the American sound to the French stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, Oscar bought it. Oscar bought Barry White. That was his song. Mine was a song called Who Is He and What Is He to You? I'm a group called Creative Source. And I don't remember what Bill... Or Oscar 
Oscar did Barry White. Um, I don't remember what Bill and Ann Klein did. I don't remember the music. Well, it was sensational. <laughs> <laughs> and then Liza Minnelli was there. Yes. Which she opened the show. Of right? course. Yeah. And there's actually, I haven't gone to see the show yet, but there I've been told, I was shown a beautiful example of one of your dresses from the event that is in the Paris Fashion Exhibit. Mm-hmm. Oh. Right now at, at FIT, FIT. With a, I think, a, is it Alva Chin in the background? I'm not sure. But the woman, there's a photograph from Versailles and then the actual dress. So it's really cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, beautiful silk it. bias draped dress. Come visit. I will give you a tour. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the Paris show? It's it's at the show that's up at the museum at FIT right now, which mm-hmm. is uh, called Paris Capital of Fashion. Yeah. It's in that exhibit? hmm Oh. They yeah. didn't tell me. I oh. got a doctorate from them this yeah. year. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, a uh, quick question. So, we've talked about the music that was at Versailles, but um, I want to talk a little bit more about the clothes. What do you think it was about the clothes that the yourself and all the other American designers were doing that really kind of won the French audience over? Because obviously one could imagine being French, they would naturally kind of preference their own couturiers. They couldn't. Because <laughs> it was a disaster, that show they put on. They had so many props and so much shit going on. Excuse the expression, but... It was it lasted for two and a half hours. That's a long time. And the American <laughs> segment was like thirty minutes. And it was done flash, 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 and over. I think the cleanness of it and uh Liza Minnelli helped win them over because they were screaming and yelling and something that they don't do to those high society people. And the thing about Versailles was the press didn't consider it a fashion event. It was a social event. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really covered by fashion people except Bill Cunningham, of course, was there. And we have some of his photographs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, including some smashing ones of Pat and your your stuff. (laughs) He was a marvelous guy. I don't know who has a library of fashion history more than he does. Mm Mm-hmm. Someone say who saved every picture he took. Right. Can you imagine how long <laughs> his career was? And he used to work for Jacques Fard in Paris. He was a milliner, right? That's how yeah. he started it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, incredible, incredible man. And Stephen, I'm. I think we're hoping you can talk a little bit about the legacy of the Battle of Versailles, maybe to, in today's fashion and American fashion, because. You know, but prior to Versailles, Versailles really put American fashion on the map in a way that it hadn't been before. Well, we just copied. I remember going to Orbach's. Orbach's was a big copier of French fashion, and they would buy a style and then duplicate it here, and they put on a fashion show every year to do that. But the thing about American fashion was that it was copying the French, and with Versailles it was clear that we weren't copying the French anymore and that we deserved a seat at the table of fashion globally. And that's what was great about the Battle of Versailles, as they called it now. Then it was just a social event. (laughs) So 46 years here later, it's 
still a phenomenon, which is great. And garnering even more and more attention still to this day. Because obviously um, Robin's book came out. There's also a documentary about the Battle of Versailles and the most recent Halston documentary Mm -hmm. that just came out. Ava DuVernay is doing one too. Yeah. Oh, and there's. I think there's going to be a fic. Is that the fictionalized? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's going to be a fictional. I can't imagine what they're going to do. Television show. Oh. Are we going to see Stephen Burroughs on it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, just had me talk to the writer. I feel oh. like you definitely deserve a cameo if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, over the course of your, we'll cr- see. Yeah. <laughs> Um, over the course of your career, you have actually won many awards. Um, you've won three Cody Awards, which yes. is amazing, in 1973, 1974, and 1977, if I'm not slightly mistaken. That's right. Um, and in case any of our listeners out there are not familiar with the Cody Awards, I would basically say that they are the fashion equivalent to winning an Academy Award or, mm. or an Oscar. So At the time, it was considered that. Yes. So what did what did winning these awards mean to you at this time? Because I think the first time that you won, you were probably like 29. I was 30. 30, yeah. 73. Mm-hmm. It's just great to be recognized by your peers as being excellent. And to win three times was more than I could ask for. And the last thing I said to my teacher when I graduated from FIT was, I'll see you at the Cody Awards. (laughs) (laughs) And it came true seven years later. That's incredible. Really amazing. So Stephen Burroughs World Boutique within Bendel's closed in 1983. Your partnership with them was not yet over, however, because your boutique within the store was relaunched in 2000. Yeah. And in much the same fashion also was your collaboration with Target. Your first part of a designer collaboration with Target was in 2010, but select pieces have now been relaunched just this month. We talked about it a little earlier. And your muse and model for these new designs is none other than Anna Cleveland, who's Pat Cleveland's daughter. So this collaboration actually marks 51 years since you first opened or since you were first involved in opening the O Boutique. So I think April and I are just would love to hear what it's like to look back and reflect on a five-decade-long career. That is incredible. (laughs) Uh, I don't remember half of it. (laughs) Uh, But it's great to still be recognized as something exceptional in the field that is so competitive to realize that it still resonates today. Mm -hmm. That's a great feeling. And you had a museum exhibition of your work in 2013, right, at Museum of the City of New York? And honestly, when I saw that show, I was like, I want every single thing in here. (laughs) And, you know, all it does, it still feels so relevant. Like, you know, I'm wearing a slightly color-blocked dress in the studio today. It's not yours, but, like, obviously, like, it's it's inspired. It's it's inspired by, you know, 
what something. you were doing. Something. <laughs> by maybe what you were doing. But um, that, that was a really beautiful exhibition. And there's an accompanying exhibition catalog that exists. Um, it's called When Fashion Danced. If any of our listeners want to order it yes, on definitely, Amazon. definitely. Because gorgeous. we both got copies. And there's really beautiful photographs of your work. But also, you know, a lot of photographs from that period. That's really cool and exciting. Right. Yeah. Done by Charles Tracy, who was a photographer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Halston and me at Versailles, he was part of our of my group that went over. And Halston asked me if he if I would mind if Tracy also photographed him. And of course, I said yes. It would be fine with me if, if Tracy wanted to do that. But Halston was a great friend. He was a great friend. What do we think um, is the future for Stephen Burroughs designs? Where are we going to see your clothes Well, next? I'm semi-retired, but I'll do a special project. And I might do an opera, Ooh, costumes nice. for an opera. Uh, but that's not something I can talk about. Quite. They make you sign things. Oh, yes. The good old-fashioned <laughs> NDA. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. we will keep our eyes and ears open for that announcement when it comes. Oh, thank you. Stephen, thank you so much for being oh, here. Thanks for inviting this me. This is a total it's a treat pleasure. for us. Yes, a very, very special time. Thank you. Thank you. April, what an incredible man with a half a century of experience in fashion. We are so fortunate to have had the chance to speak with him. That was really, really special. Yes, certainly. Stephen is one of those very rare designers who propels the history of fashion forward in entirely new original directions. And, you know, we, we mentioned the Battle of Versailles earlier, but what we didn't mention is that Stephen was the only designer of color, person of color, to be invited to show his designs at this event. And he was also the very first um, African-American designer to receive a Cody Award as well. And I really love the fact that he once remarked, and he talked about it a little bit in the interview, that mm-hmm. clothes were toys for adults to play with. Yeah. So he really puts the fun in fashion. I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider Stephen's legacy and maybe consider incorporating a little bit of playfulness and color into your own ensemble next time you get dressed. Please join us this Thursday for our Fashion History Mystery mini sid while we answer your burning, burning questions about fashion history. <laughs> and if you'd like to submit a question for a future mini-sode, you can message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast. And if you are a fan of the show, please consider heading over to iTunes and rating this show. We would be so grateful. Last but not least, many thanks to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.